organizer, facilitator, teacher, writer. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your work? Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I live in Brooklyn. I, uh, I spend a lot of my time facilitating groups through group different kinds of group processes, a lot of like uh, strategic planning and um, group conflict type stuff and group dynamics, uh, you know, particularly, yeah, like, uh, you know, groups like uh, If Not Now or Sunrise Movement or, you know, I don't know if you know, you might not know those groups particularly, but like climate groups or uh, racial justice groups or, you know, groups kind of social movement, grassroots organizations uh, uh, when they're going through their sort of planning processes or, or when they're having trouble with each other or um, they need to restructure and stuff like that. I come and sort of support them in that process. Um, and specifically what I'm really interested in is like taking groups towards tension and conflict, which uh-huh. I think is actually where the juicy stuff is. Okay, can uh, you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, um, I think that a lot of people, and I think this is also especially true about, you know, social movement sort of, you know, groups, is uh, a lot of a lot of people are conflict avoidant for, for a lot of really good reasons. I think people are afraid that conflict can destroy the group. Or they have negative experiences with conflict. We're being given negative messages about conflict, and we're afraid of it. And a lot of our, like, um, presence in the groups that we're a part of is is really about meeting a need to be part of a thing and if the thing collapses because it's in conflict then we'll be alone and so there's a lot of reasons to sort of shy away from conflict but in my experience when groups do that they tend to be relatively dysfunctional uh, you know so when, when they're avoiding the tension that's underneath the surface they're both unable to actually be that healthy and strong and particularly unable to develop good strategy because strategy is really all about uh, going to the root of the problem, being honest about your capacity, your enemy's capacity, like what's true about the moment, what's true about us. And uh, when groups are conflict avoidant, they tend to not tell the truth. So uh, they tend to just not that be, be not be that effective. So that that's a lot of my work. And can, can you give a practical example just to illustrate yeah. the point? You don't have to name the organization. Sure, sure, sure. Just to like... uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot. Uh, often uh, groups are dishonest about how power is operating in the group itself so like a lot of you know activist groups like to think of themselves as non-hierarchical and you know it makes sense to want to be that because so much of the world we want to build is you know connected to that and uh, but in reality all groups have some level of hierarchy and when groups are dishonest about the level of sort of like power imbalances that are in the group it's impossible to hold people accountable. It's impossible to have people who have higher rank teach people who have lower rank. You know, it just actually screws everything up. And so, you know, a group that's not honest about that is going to have a hard time being honest about how it makes decisions. It's going to have a hard time actually making decisions about its strategy and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's just a, one example, but, I, you know, I think I think there's a lot of... We, we could do this for a while, but yeah. I don't know if it's the... No, no, it makes sense. <laughs> uh, and, and you think that to achieve a non-hierarchical structure in a group is difficult? Yeah, and maybe impossible. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not, you know, I'm not actually... Uh, it's an ambition a lot of groups have. Yeah, it's a story a lot of groups have about themselves because, uh-huh. it, be, because it means something to their identity. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, also we've had, a lot of us have had really negative experiences with hierarchy and we came to the movement to 
defy that and mm-hmm. and the world we want is less hierarchical than the one that exists right. or 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 different or you know in the sense that people get to make decisions about the things that actually impact their lives and you know so there's something really sensible about it but the the you know i think that's really just one example a lot of groups stay on the surface by you know answering abstract questions about their mission statement and mm-hmm. things like that that are actually don't really go deep into what they will actually do differently and how the things they will actually do will make a material difference in the world and how that is actually relevant and you know these sort of um and you force groups to like confront that question and yeah. really yeah put to paper like yeah. what are we actually doing and how are we making a material difference in the world yeah and when i'm doing a good job then mm-hmm. yeah i think okay. the the point is to really and this uh, is what you do full time like this uh yeah i mean pay, yeah pay your bills. yeah that's great yeah i'm I feel like very lucky yeah it's awesome i i really i really enjoy those like tense moments are actually i think really beautiful and reveal a lot of people's potential and their uh-huh. um and their yearnings and you know I, it's a, a real honor to actually be there with people in that so sounds great anyway that's all I would I just wrote a piece about this recently so if, if people are curious about it they can oh, we can put that in the show notes great, great. and uh, you first came to my attention mm-hmm. when you wrote a piece called um, Towards the Next Jewish Rebellion yeah and uh, it's a long piece <laughs> yeah sorry no it's okay but, <laughs> and, and you know the second half is really I think what excited me so I'm glad I got to the second half <laughs> But it really, um, it spoke about how anti-Semitism is systemic in the capitalist mode of production. Uh, maybe we should break this down by just like starting how it's different from racism. Like how does racism function, for example, as like an institutional pillar of the United States? Yeah. And, and how is anti-Semitism different? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think different groups experience oppression in different ways right. because the because systems like white supremacy, they're meant to prop up the elite mm-hmm. and they're meant to benefit a certain class and, you know, subset of people. And those people use that system to basically manipulate all the other groups to be able to... Stay in power. Yeah, stay in power. Right. So, so, you know, there are a lot of people now who are talking about anti-Semitism as... As a kind of racism, or as a as a part of white supremacy, mm-hmm. um, and or or as a part of capitalism and white supremacy, which I think at this point are, are inseparable. Even if you have a story about, we might disagree about which came first or what da 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 da. But really, at this point, we're living in a system where capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy are, are bound up in each other. And right from uh, from the perspective of Jewish historiography, I would just call it the Fourth Empire. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense to me. We could we unpack that more if you'd like. From our perspective, we have this concept of these like four empires in history Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome mm-hmm. that kind of are like our antithesis, mm-hmm. or this force that not only oppresses us and prevents us from fulfilling our mission in history, but also kind of takes our place as the light to the world. Mm-hmm. In a sense. Mm-hmm. And the fourth empire, which we identify as Esav, from the perspective of the Hebrew worldview, mm-hmm. and that first like manifested as the Roman Empire but then it kind of morphed into the church and then mm. it kind of morphed into Europe and mm. then it kind of crossed the Atlantic and became the United States and that's mm. like when we think about the fourth empire today that is capitalism that is white supremacy that is Christian mm. hegemony mm. all of that is kind of the fourth empire mm-hmm. yeah that, I mean that resonates so I mean I think the to, to go back to the question you were asking I mean I think what's important to note about anti-Semitism is that it put Jews in a particular role mm-hmm. in connection to that bigger 
system than it put, say, black people in the United States. Right, so, so maybe it would help to kind of unpack yeah. like how anti-black racism works in yeah. the United States, for example. That's like the easiest. Yeah, you know, sure. From the kidnapping of Africans yeah, today. Yeah, right. Well, I'm a white dude, so I'm, you know, my, my own understanding, of, yeah, nor a Jew. Um, so my own understanding of it is going to be, you know, right. whatever from my own understanding of it. But yeah, I mean, there's something absolutely fundamental to the United States about anti-black racism and that really most of the wealth of this country, all of the wealth of this country is based on the genocide of the people who were living here and the kidnapping and enslavement of the people who were brought here who were black. And uh, basically nothing here exists that wasn't made by that in one way or another. You know, throughout that process, black people were subjected to the most heinous crimes and uh, exploited for their labor. Uh, and, and that exploitation also morphed. Yeah, absolutely. Things. Yeah, so I mean, you think about uh, the role of black people in the economy, it has always been to exploit them for their labor and... Uh, destroyed them in like, some ways. Like the, like the shock absorbers of economic downturns. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, and and then if you think about uh, the role of indigenous people in the economy, it was actually to displace them so we could have their stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And then so the role of Jews in the economy is not that. And that's why it's harder to... It, it's harder even for leftists sometimes to understand the way anti-Semitism is systemic because it doesn't look like anti-black racism. Um, right, and... and- for some reason, if your oppression doesn't match that model, it might not be real. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a problem. There's a, a there's something that's happening in the left in uh, in general that's been happening. I think in part as a result of neoliberalism and that and academia and whatever a handful of other sources and and, and the destruction of like a class conscious left um, in America. Yeah, I mean, but really over the, not just in America, I mean, the destruction of the Soviet Union in some ways is actually related to this. Not that not that, that is a model or whatever, but just that there isn't, has not been a, a materialist socialist left for a long time, has lent itself to, you know, a bunch of things on the, a, a bunch of dynamics in the movement that we don't necessarily need to talk about, but that one of them is the comparisons of different kinds of oppressions and the a sort of like um, almost a desire to be the most victimized because that's where we derive our power in part because we're actually so far away from the enemy and so small and so unlikely to win that beating each other up is actually much more within reach the oppression Olympics yeah you know when I was saying in my piece and I'm definitely not the only person or, or anywhere near the first person to be talking about this but we're just the, the idea that Jews play a particular function mm-hmm. in the maintenance of the empire as a buffer group that appeared more clearly in feudalism yeah right right. so in you know the sort of feudal example is like most jews are poor Mm -hmm. and you know they're scraping by the way everybody else is scraping by they've been given a certain uh they've been excluded from some kinds of trades and allowed into other kinds of trades which gives them the appearance of having some wealth or access some of them maybe do have more wealth and access and then there's like a small group of jews that are the tax collectors for Mm -hmm. the feudal lord which is the middle-aged oppressor. Yeah. Meaning we weren't the peasants, we weren't from the village, we weren't lords, we weren't from the castle. Yeah. We were something else that the peasants experienced as oppressive. Yeah, we were the face. Of yeah, the right, exactly. We're, we were the face of the empire mm-hmm. and, and by design. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that those Jews who were playing those roles weren't doing horrible things or benefiting from the exploitation of the peasants or what, you know, that, that oppression is complicated and, yeah. and, and 
you know, all sorts of people from all sorts of groups try to advance themselves at the expense of other people, and that's been true throughout history. And uh, well, I think one of the ways it works, especially well with Jews enlisting Jews into this role, is that by the time we started to see this manifest. Jews had already been suffering for centuries, felt extremely vulnerable. I mean, we're talking about Jews in Europe for the most part who, who uh-huh. experienced themselves as extremely vulnerable, yep. who had many experiences of persecution, yep. who had developed within ourselves this kind of desire for proximity to power, to have like, you know, yep. a big Gentile regime to protect us. Yep. And telling ourselves that those peasants are anti-Semites anyway, and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. you know, it's cyclical to a certain extent. Yep. Like, and but, but ultimately we would be distracting the peasants from from the real power and when they would you know get angry enough to fight back against their oppression they would attack the Jews and not the lords exactly and I, and I and I think that's part of the design mm-hmm. and it plays out in pretty similar you know uh, not necessarily in the same level of violence right now um, but you know when you see like right wingers peddle conspiracy theories about Jews when they're targeting Soros or they're tar- whatever that's the same sort of dynamic happening where mm-hmm. actually they're facing a population that's getting angrier and increasingly more willing to confront its oppressors and and they need to convince those people that the oppressor is not them mm-hmm. and uh, or or some subset of them the the jewish capitalists mm-hmm. or, or globalists yeah or, or maybe someday or uh maybe someday kushner mm-hmm. what, what does it mean to have you know a jew at that high level it means you have if it ever gets that bad, like you got somebody you can sacrifice, you know. Right. Um, so, I, I, yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's one pretty fundamental. Um, and and being visible, I, I think also in exa- American yeah. society, like visible positions of like economic power, yeah. whether it's the Federal Reserve or totally, you know, being on the board of banks or corporations, yeah. or whatever. But not really. I, I think it's interesting in the United States because Jews definitely have, at the very least, an illusion of inclusion. Uh-huh. But also this experience of feeling like we're on probation. Totally. Right. That like, there's something conditional about yeah, this like, access. Like we can lose it. Yeah, and that actually that's the other thing I was going to say is that there, you know, alongside this sort of particular role that Jews are fulfilling or being given or however you want to put it, um, there's like a there's something cyclical about this system mm-hmm. that's also different from other systems of oppression. So you know, um, it's not constant. Right. So like the oppression of black people in the U.S. is constant and consistent and uh, is fundamental to the nature of this empire. And, uh, and it's constantly reinforced yeah. by all sorts of institutions, even like, you know, professional sports. Yeah, or... and so its form might change, but but not in ways that, are, that shift its character. Its character, like, you know, you have the new Jim Crow instead of Jim Crow, and you have Jim Crow instead of slavery, and those things are different, and they feel different, and they appear to be different, and there's a different type of violence to them and, and all that stuff but it doesn't change the character of the role that those people are meant to play which is about exploitation and um, and and repression and, and anti-semitism I, I think is cyclical in the sense that part of what makes Jews a useful target part of what makes Jews uh, visible is the allowance of some level of comfort uh, and stability for Jews that then gets taken away and so, like, we wouldn't actually be any good at the role that we're supposed to play if we were always being murdered in pogroms. Mm-hmm. 
there have to be periods in which Jews are safe and feeling good and looking wealthy and being wealthy in order for them to fill the role of being the targets right. that then initiates those pogroms. So, you know, before all of those, you know, big moments, I mean, I remember there was a quote uh, by this, oh, fuck, what is his name? Um, I quoted in my piece, I don't remember his name, but he was, uh, it's bad that I don't remember his name. You could link to it in the show notes. Okay. So, um, you know, a guy who was a, a socialist non-Jew mm-hmm. in Germany who wrote about anti-Semitism, which was very rare, because even... Right, he, even the Jews got the Jewish question wrong. Totally. He, he coined the term anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. And, and beca- actually, because so many of the socialists around him were buying into anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. as a, you know, w- which was, in his view, distracting from the class struggle against, against capital... But anyway, I mean, he, so he's all up in this and gets this analysis and whatever. And there's this famous quote of his that's basically, I mean, I think it's in 1931 or something like that. And he's like, but in Germany, that could never happen of course because not. the Jews are stable and they've le- reached a level of uh, like insulation in, and, and mm-hmm. like connection to the infrastructure of this country or whatever, that that's not possible. No, that's, know, it's like that's a years, only a handful of years before. No, it's two you know? years before yeah. Hitler's rise to power. And, and it's interesting because it just shows the extent to which Jews were included in Germany. Yeah. Just like so right. close to when it all came crashing down. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a part of the system. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of how anti-Semitism functions properly. And so it is both the fact that Jews, let's say in America are comparatively well off and I mean I don't want to downplay it like Jews are actually powerful it's not it's not a mirage like there are many powerful Jews in this country and also I don't think Jews have ever reached the level of collective wealth and comfort as exists right now for American Jewry and that is part of what makes it possible for Jews to become a target as this system continues to collapse and right, people are looking for somebody to blame right, for Right, we're it. not powerful enough to really pull the strings to yeah. the end. Yeah, like we're, that's right. We're, we're just powerful enough to be blamed. Yeah, But yeah. we're not powerful enough to do the blaming. Yeah, I think that's right. And we buy into it because we know, I, I think Jews really carry, especially Ashkenazi Jews, carry a lot of baggage mm-hmm. of centuries of persecution. Totally. And still, I mean, I hear it. I heard uh, once I was in a synagogue in, in New York and there was a rabbi speaking who had experienced Kristallnacht and he had escaped from Europe. And um, this was, I think, right after the shooting at, at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And he said the main difference, the main difference between then and now, this is his take, is that today the police, the FBI, the authorities are on our side. They're with us. Meaning, there is, like, I could feel it, like, this uh-huh. deep desire for somebody who experienced, you know, Crystal yeah. Nach and who survived the Shoah and who escaped to, like, feel that for that to never happen again, you need to be positioned close to power. Yeah, totally. And, and so I think a lot of Jews just buy into that being the solution. Totally. Just, you know, I think that's right. And I, and I think that's that's been true throughout history I mean I think that's probably the logic the logic of the tax collector mm-hmm. is I'm safer with the Lord than mm-hmm. I am with the, the peasants hate me anyway and whatever and um, yeah I mean I think a, a, a lot of like uh, you know the sort of like there's there is this kind of like uh, Jewish renaissance happening I think uh, like in the social movement mm-hmm. world over the 
last maybe five years. Well, you find a lot of that. Jews on the left in the United States are looking for Jewish identity. Yeah, they're, they're looking for Jewish identity. They're analyzing to the struggle. Yeah, yes, that's right. They're like one of the things that I was writing about in my piece was how much we have over time tried to assimilate into the movement as regular white people, or you know, not all Jews are white, but for the, those of us who are white, to basically minimize our Jewishness in order to just you know blend in with the crowd and. There's a beginning of a rupture of that over the last, you know, I don't know, maybe five or ten years, or who knows. I'm not, I'm not a historian, so you might track it even further back. But that there's, I think, some desire to reconnect with Jewishness, some sense, I think, that whiteness is actually collapsing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I think white people in America feel that desperately, and it's part of why we have Trump. And I think, and and so there's a, almost a bit of like uh, we got to jump ship connected to that. Well, Karen Brodkin, you know Karen Brodkin, uh-huh. she, she writes the book How Jews Became White Folks uh-huh. and What That Means About Race in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, she recently said, you know, she was asked in the Trump era, are Jews still white? Because mm-hmm. her whole book is about how Jews became white in the United States, mm-hmm. through the GI Bill, etc. And her answer is very interesting. She says, if you have to ask that question, we were never white. Mm-hmm. Right? We never really had whiteness if you have to keep checking, are we still white, are we still yeah. white, are we still mm-hmm. white? Like, you know, we were never the people. We, we were never the people who were deciding who gets whiteness. Right. Th- those are the real white people. Those are the real. Yep. That's the real power structure. That's those right. who decide who gets included, that's not right. those who just probational. Yeah. Or cre- conditionally. Conditionally or, yeah. get, get mm-hmm. some kind of inclusion. Yeah. I think know, that's when it's right. convenient for the power structure, and it's I think something Jews have to deeply think about in this country. Not mm-hmm. just Jews on the left. I think you know Jews in general. There's mm-hmm. a, a, a vulnerability that um, comes with not understanding your place in the system. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, I feel lucky to be Jewish, but I'd hate to be some other kind of white person in America right now because they really have nowhere to go. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this, like you have an identity. To yeah, I, to. yeah, I, I can be a Jew like right. I want to be a Jew and I and I'm and there are risks associated with that. But to be, you know, fourth generation like Italian American, mm-hmm. it's even harder to like, what's the future of that people like when whiteness when whiteness collapses, which it should, because it is actually a tool of oppression, you know. Well, what does that look like when you say whiteness collapses? Well, I mean, I think, like, I, I think that, you know, white people are not a people, mm-hmm. right? So it's an idea, mm-hmm. and it's an idea that includes some people and excludes other people. And there are a bunch of reasons that whiteness as a concept is under attack, but one of them is that the demographics of this country are changing, and you know, a lot of white people feel like their whole world is actually crumbling. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a massive fight over that identity that's happening now. And I think as as social movements gain power, if social movements ever gain power, and as people of color gain power and, and gain numbers and, and whatever, then, then the concept of whiteness will continue to be challenged in a way that it's already been, you know, I mean, we're already at seeing... At identified. An, it's yeah, identified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is there is resistance to white supremacy mm-hmm. in a way that I mean, there's always been resistance to white supremacy. Right? People who are oppressed always resist. But there's a broader resistance. But, yeah, yeah. I think th- I think that resistance is actually becoming more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're at the beginning of that, and who knows right, where it goes, certainly. and who knows who wins. But yeah, there's one other thing that you were saying about. I thought there was something really interesting in in the story of the rabbi who who experienced Kristallnacht, mm-hmm. um, like feeling himself more safe, mm-hmm. and and I think there's. I, what I was um, starting to say about this, like, you know, maybe Jewish renaissance is happening, is that one of the things coming out of it is that a lot of Jewish folks are starting to see that our future is actually linked 
to other oppressed people and not to the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting and, 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 and us important. Being, us being able to come as Jews with our own struggles yeah. that intersect with yeah. the struggles of other marginalized yeah, groups. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. not as like privileged white allies. Right, exactly. That there is not, we're not serving anybody or, or you know, we have to take account for the ways in which we've been, you know, given things at the expense of other people and, and, and the power that we and have that's also relative part of how to our oppression has worked. Totally. Yeah, and, and also we can use that. Mm-hmm. We can use that in, in, in the fight, that, but that but that actually our safety is in solidarity with other people, mm-hmm. uh, with other oppressed people, and not with the ruling class. Right, and I would even argue that because of the way anti-Semitism works and the level of privilege or power that that's put into our hands, we can actually take a very meaningful leadership role in those struggles. Yeah, yeah, uh, so absolutely. I, I guess that's mm-hmm. kind of like if we're going to put this now into an international context yeah. okay. and, and look at how whiteness works on the global playing field mm-hmm. and that there are certain nations that are the quote-unquote white nations or that are the right. powerful nations, you know, the United States, Britain, France, etc. Israel mm-hmm. seems to fall into this trap of middle Asian oppressor. Mm-hmm. And I think since the state was established, the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, had this policy of superpower patronage, which is, you know, kind of grandfathered in from our experiences in Europe during feudalism, like for us to be able to survive as a state, especially the borders and situation we had in 1948, we need to be connected to a big, powerful country, whether it's the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. you know, for a couple of days, or France, or, <laughs> yeah. or the United States, like, there is a need for us to attach ourselves to this big, powerful Gentile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the clearest example of that pushing us into conflict with our neighbors and serving the interests of foreign powers was definitely the Sinai campaign, where like Israel mm-hmm. is teaming up with Britain and France. And mm-hmm. we're talking about less than 10 years after we defeated Britain in this like urban guerrilla struggle, we're now with the British, with the French, mm-hmm. you know, attacking Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that on the global playing field, Israel is kind of uniquely situated. Uh, our liberation, I think, at this point in time, or part of Jewish liberation, you know, in this generation is actually, first of all, gaining like an awareness, a consciousness of the things that we're talking about, how anti-Semitism works, how a middle-aged oppressor works, uh, mm-hmm. how we've been positioned, the power it does give us, and how our liberation, for the most part, demands that we make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressors. Yep. And where would that put us? Meaning, if the state of Israel tomorrow became like a revolutionary state mm-hmm. and actually started to ally itself with the other oppressed peoples of the world, and in many ways, peoples who have similar experiences or similar situations to us, you know, including the way they're dominated by U.S. foreign aid or... Um, mm-hmm. You know, other peoples in the Middle East and the developing world, can Israel play a meaningful role if we were to quote unquote like switch sides? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think you're more qualified to oh, answer okay. it than me. Yeah. But I think, I mean, as someone who's living there, I guess I've like kind of taken some of the things that I've seen you say and others and kind mm-hmm. of try to apply it to the national level. Because, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is, is really juicy and. And I think you're right that there's a at least um, at least part of the explanation of Israel's function mm-hmm. in the world is, you know, to to be that middle agent the way the tax collector was, and you know, and and, and it works to a certain extent. Yeah, it's if you so, look I mean, at the global left and the attitude towards yeah. Israel, like Israel does kind of magnetize a lot of the animosity of totally. progressive movements that even sometimes more than 
the actual empires. Absolutely. I mean, you've got like leftists in these European countries whose wealth is built on, you know, hundreds of years of exploitation of, you know, Africans and people in, in everywhere in the global south who are pointing their finger at the Jews in Israel as the worst empire in the world that needs to be singled out or whatever. You know, I, I, there is something hypocritical about people who are in power right. doing but, that. And then there's oppressed peoples who are buying into it as well. Yeah, and some of that is because, uh, like, Palestinian movements have been successful and mm. good for them, you know, and, and good that they managed to highlight the story, you know, in a way that, like, uh, Tibetans managed to do too. And, you know, the Palestinians and Tibetans aren't the only ones, but mm. good that, like, people heard. But but I think you're right that there's there's something really scripted about it and um right and i think that even in terms of like palestinian liberation i think that palestinian liberation and jewish liberation are so intertwined at this point kind of because we're living on top of one another and just <laughs> yeah. like we're, we're living together in one tiny country but also because i think that palestinians are very much victims of a jewish identity crisis uh-huh. and of us playing the middle agent oppressor role yep meaning if we were to kind of liberate ourselves from the identity crisis and liberate ourselves from the middle age and oppressor role, a lot of the material conditions that Palestinians are pointing to would wither away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we just wouldn't be playing that role anymore. And we'd be more sensitive to how these structures work. I think a lot of Israelis are just not aware of how some of these systems and structures... Totally. Work. Yeah, I think that's well, right. most people, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's right. And I think also, you know, I mean, th- there's this other side of being the middle agent that, hey, you get shit. Mm-hmm. You get shit for being the middle agent, you know? And that that part of anti-Semitism isn't actually unique to anti-Semitism. It's true about all people. You know, it's like when you live at the heart of the empire, I get shit here. Mm-hmm. Like, I get, I get to have nice stuff that people who are further out on the periphery and are more the subject of the oppression don't that, get to have. That's not just Jews. That's everybody in the imperial core. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I like to compare this. I mean, this Middle Asian oppressor role to Darth Vader, <laughs> because I think you know Darth Vader, or at least before Star Wars Nine came out, I could say that Darth Vader is empowered by the Emperor to oppress others. But at the end of Return of the Jedi, he's the only one who's able to actually take down the Emperor. Yeah, yeah, be- because he has that power. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a good example of how one can use their privilege or power totally. uh, to switch sides and join the rebels. Yeah, I don't know if we're the only ones who can, but I think what's really important about the analogy you're making is that we get to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of our tshuva. Yeah. Like from a Jewish perspective, right. I think that's like part of our tshuva and saying, yeah. okay, we came back to life, we're not a gas anymore, we're a solid, we have an independent state in the land that we've been yearning for for thousands of years, now what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that state supposed to be? Where is that state supposed to take mankind? Mm-hmm. Like, how is the world going to change as a result of the children of Israel coming back to life mm-hmm. and uh, can we lead mankind into a post-capitalist world in a way that other revolutionary movements have not been able to mm-hmm. and to unpack what all that means I mean unfortunately that's not the direction that Israel has been moving in <laughs> at the political level but I think that on the sociological level it's definitely moving in that direction more I think the generation of Israelis that are kind of rising now you know the demographics are shifting just uh, among Jewish Israelis I'm saying like, the demographics are shifting to the extent that people are less westernized people are more in touch with their own identity people are more in touch with the features of Jewish identity that unite us with our neighbors and, and mm. the Palestinians and I think that it looks scary I think to a lot of American Jews uh, especially liberal American Jews because suddenly you see Israel is changing it's no longer this kind of Rhodesia mm-hmm. you know this bastion of western civilization in the Middle East but actually taking on its own identity that's mm. very non-Western and what do we make of this? Is it becoming a, mm-hmm. uh, 
is it becoming radicalized and a dangerous I mean I see the tension whenever mm -hmm. I travel but I think ultimately it's a positive tension. I think ultimately the majority of Israelis, you know, 10, 20 years from now are people who will be more free from this middle Asian oppressor role mm -hmm. because they'll be more free psychologically from this like attachment to empire or superpower, a patronage. Mm -hmm. And wanting to be this kind of outpost of Western civilization. I mean, I think that's why liberal Zionists are so obsessed with this two-state solution, because it's like their Hail Mary to save mm -hmm. this kind of, you know, Rhodesia Israel, mm -hmm. Western fortress Israel that they seem intent on having. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope you're right. I mean, I, it's, you know, I think the thing that's so important to remember is a lot of people have been victims, mm -hmm. and we can react to that. We have the agency to react to that victimization in all sorts of ways. We can we can bunker up and stick to people who look just like us and talk just like us and whatever. Or we can find partnership in people whose interests are actually similar to ours, even if they look different. And well, that's actually something we definitely have to unpack because Israel seems to me to be one of the only states that first defines who it wants to be allied to and then identifies its interests based on that partnership I mean, as opposed to first uh -huh. identifying your interests and then finding allies mm -hmm. so, I mean that's part of our liberation too I mean I like to look at the state of Israel as a caterpillar it's a work in progress it's really the butterfly we're going to turn into that I'm concerned with yeah and obviously hoping to be part of that process facilitating that process and uh, and seeing how it radiates out to the diaspora also like seeing what that means for diaspora Jews and uh, I'm actually an optimistic guy like the I see a lot of positive trends even if they're like stirrings beneath the surface and I try to kind of latch onto that and see how we can move things forward in a really positive way whether it's just more independence or more of an independent posture from the United States one of the great things about the relationship between Netanyahu and Obama was more and more Israelis were actually talking about independence, mm -hmm. actually talking about being free from uh, from American control. Unfortunately, a lot of people slid back yeah. because of uh, Trump's public postures towards Israel. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think we're moving in a good direction. I'm, I'm hopeful. We're obviously working hard. We could probably use help from people like you. <laughs> we'll even uh, t talk about ways you can help us organize better. But it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, it's really yeah. interesting. I hope people take these ideas really seriously, read what you've written and uh, other works about how anti-Semitism functions materially mm -hmm. in the systems we live in. And, uh, well, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. This is Yudak Kohen, British Hazon Vision Magazine. You're listening to the Next Stage Podcast.